Hi, my name is Joanne and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Lapid here at North Highlands. I'm kind of excited myself this year because I've finally gotten to the, I'm 60. So this year I'm going to be in the 60 to 70 category. I've never won before because <laughs> the, the ladies that were in the 50 to 60 category were really fast. So I'm hoping I'm going to do a little better this year. We have some really great skiers that do really well, and then we have some that just, you know, get by. And it's it's all good. Everybody congratulates everybody. We have a very comfortable, cozy room, and uh, it's nice. Everybody talks to everybody, and it, it's just a great social event as well as a physical thing. It's lots of volunteers out on the trail and, and in here. It's an absolutely feel-good uh, event all around for everybody. I look forward to it every year. Okay, so we're recording. Oh. For my memory's sake. <laughs> and homemade cookies. Like, so, Di Diane, like, before we get into all this, like, Tell me about yourself. Tell me about your life. And I've I've read about all of your competitive, you know, you've been a runner and just an, an incredible life you've led as a uh, well, teacher. Well, I'm old now, and I've forgotten a whole lot of it, too. <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I just, I grew up on a small, uh, I guess you'd call them mixed firms in Hans County. That's when... Everybody had a cow or, you know, a few cows, a few chickens, maybe some pigs, big garden that you had to work in in the summertime and everything. Yeah. So just rural Nova Scotia background, but youngest of seven and everybody else, you know, grew up, went away. So, of course, I wanted to grow up and go away too. Went to university in Calgary for a couple of years. Then transferred to Queen's, finished up my degree at Queen's University in Ontario. Then I spent uh, five years doing odd things like working and traveling and so on, and lived in Europe for a couple of years in Madrid. Well, in Scotland, then in London, and then in Madrid. I taught English in Madrid. So. Oh, wow. Uh, and then I uh, had to start paying student loans, so I came back, <laughs> came back to Nova Scotia and worked at the trail shop. Um, well, I actually had a job with Canadian Hostling Association and then worked with the trail shop and they kept me kept me on there for, I don't know, a year or so. And uh, then I thought, well, maybe I better do something more formal. Uh, and I had met Brian at that time. We got married in 75 and it was 76 that I went to Dow to get my Bachelor of Education and then started teaching in 77. Yeah. So Todd had uh, taught at CEC in Truro for one year. I was filling in as a sabbatical and then I had a job in Tatamagush for a couple of, two and a half years because by that time Brian had done training as a meteorological technician and he was posted to Sable Island. So I lived, I moved with our young son Connor to Sable Island and lived out there for wow. I guess six months or so. Connor, we always say Connor took his first steps on Sable Island. 
doing something so I came back when when I came back I, I, I had applied for a job and I got a job again at CEC in Truro so I finished up my teaching career there um, in the French department taught French and uh, department head for a few years and then I was a vice principal for the last three years yeah the first female administrator at that school if you could imagine took some until 2000 2000. 2002. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, it was my last year. It was, was your, your last year. year. That's right. Yeah. To, to get a female administrator there. <clears throat> anyway, but that was great fun. Enjoyed that. Those were the best three years. <laughs> Loved it. And yeah. uh, so Kate graduated in 2003, and then my youngest child, Ewan, graduated in 2005. But in the meantime, um, Wait, my husband and I had started a property business, buying some properties in the Truro area and so, developing and so on. And uh, <clears throat> he died in 2003, and I just felt I had to get a grip on the business and see what was going on and everything. So, so I took early retirement in 2005, and I've been, I guess, retired ever since. Mm -hmm. And still working at the business. Yeah, well, I do the business, organize the business, run the business, so, yeah. yeah. That's a nutshell story. So tell me about your time on, you skied on the provincial team? Yeah, I just happened, when I was working at the trail shop, that's when I started to ski, because we were selling a lot of skis then, and it was like, Wooden skis, hickory base, lignus stone edges, the bamboo poles, the three pin bindings, wow. and all that was high tech. That was yeah. really good. So that's what I bought, and uh, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> and I could ski. I mean, I'd always been active and fit and everything, and so I started to ski. And uh, it was after I met Brian that I started to kind of ski up here because we used to come to Wentworth. There was you could always depend on the snow here. <laughs> And then I guess it was, yeah, it would have been the fall of 74. Um, there were some training camps and stuff, and I tried yeah. out and made the team. I think I was actually the fastest girl on the uh, 75 Canada Games team. So, yeah. And at that time, 75 was in Lesbridge, Alberta, and there were four women, four men, and two events each. The women skied an individual 10K, the men skied an individual 15K, and then there were the relays, 10K for the men, 5K for the women. So, yeah. so that was it, but we went to Lesbridge. And then after that, yeah, and the shocking thing is, the 75, after we came home from the Canada Games and everything, and then they usually had the uh, annual general meeting for the uh, Cross Country Ski Association. <coughs> I think it was called Nordic Ski Nova Scotia at that time in the spring and this spring the meeting was in Antigonish because there was a ski community in Antigonish there was a very active ski community in Port Hawkesbury because mm -hmm. when they opened the paper mill their store there were a lot of people that was Finnish and Swedish oh, yes, and there were a lot of yes. people that came so they, I, they had quite a good trail system there Brian used to go up there to races. I never actually ski there, but he recounted stories of going to Port Hawkesbury to ski on the trails around there. Yeah. And uh, 
actually before I had met him, he and a friend had dropped out of university and gone off to Norway to ski for a oh. winter in Norway, and he and Gary Hartling. And uh, so they spent uh, a winter over there, and Gary, uh, Brian actually went to Finland to meet up with this Arto that he knew from Port Hawkesbury and skied there. Yeah. Yeah, they dropped out of university in time to get back their student loans so they could finance the trip. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so anyway, so there was this AGM that, you know, Brian went to, and I thought, well, I should go. I went along, you know. And <clears throat> the first thing I knew, I was being nominated as chair of the association. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't really know anything, but Carl Purcell was there. I think he had been chair, and he said, well, I'm willing to work with you. And then that very year, I had to go somewhere. I don't know where it was, Ottawa or somewhere for the national meeting. I didn't know anything. So, uh -huh. But anyway, I did chair the association for a number of years, and at that time, like I say, there were... <clears throat> it was a time of growth for cross-country. It's, it's like all sports. It's cyclical. Mm -hmm. So they had the Metro Ski Club at that time, and it was 200 members. Like, that's where all the skis were being sold, you know, at the Trail Chopper. The Trail Chopper was really one of the only outlets for ski gear. So uh, they, <laughs> they were selling lots of skis. And so there was this Metro Ski Club, which was enormous, 200 members. But they had a 100-member ski club in, in Truro, the Streakers. And they had... Um, uh, there was, you know, various school communities like down yes. the valley and over towards Antigonish. Uh, Cape North hadn't figured in yet at that time. So, but there were skiers around, yeah. ski clubs around. I mean, one of the provincial championships was held at the Debert on the Debert trails. I can't remember what year. Maybe it was in the seventies, probably, because you know the Colchester Club was a big club. And yes. Yeah. So anyway, that was, you know. but then, you know, it, uh, as I say, it's cyclical. So you have that peak and then something else becomes more interesting. So it sort of falls off a bit mm -hmm. and so on. So you have your years of struggle. 79, 1979, those were the Canada Games in Brandon, Manitoba. And Brian was the coach and I was the manager at that time. So I had to take leave from school to do that because I was working full-time so but uh, fortunately the coach of the basketball team also taught at my school and I was chatting with him one day about it and he said oh I just told the board I wasn't gonna go if I wasn't if I couldn't get paid I was thinking I would have to take time off without pay so yeah. I said oh well I'll try that too <laughs> so anyway neither me nor I lost any pay by going as coaches our staff to the Canada Games. Yeah. But that's what it was like in those days. You didn't get a whole lot of support. Yes. So. Yeah. Then I had children. Connor was born in 1980. Margaret in 1981. 83 and you in 86. I'm 84. 84. What did I say? 83. Oh, I, yeah, okay. I had two miscarriages in here. So. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, Brian kept skiing at that time. He was on the biathlon, the national biathlon team. Right. Okay, yeah. So, so I mean, then, you know, you're just working and looking after kids. And, you know, you have a job. You have to keep the house tidy and do the laundry and try to fit in a little bit of fitness now and then. So. Yeah. It wasn't easy. But, you know, just busy. If you have children, you know exactly what it's like. 
Yes. <laughs> and and I'm doing the math in my head. So you had one child and then you had one basically a year later, so a few months of not being pregnant. July to November. Connor was born in July. She was born the following November. Yeah. That's busy. That's a high achieving time. Yeah. And I was working full time. As I was yeah. saying to somebody yesterday, because I'm on this fabulous, well, interesting committee at prison in Spring Hill. <laughs> Called the tell. There's so many stories, Kate. I might have to be dropping in here every Wednesday morning. I'll tell you about this committee. It's called the Citizens Advisory Committee at the prison. And uh, it's great because we don't have to do anything. We have a meeting once a month, but we have no power to do anything. But like most committees, you have to fundraise and do this and do that. None of that. It's just listening, and you hear both sides. You have meeting with the management team, so the management tells us what's going on, what the plans are, what the budget is, the numbers, and what the movements, and so on like that. And we have a meeting with the inmate committee, and if they have, if they have an issue, sometimes they do, some quite often they don't. Then they'll tell us, and we can pass that on to management. But I mean, there's no obligation. We have no power to do anything. So, so I always say it's a great committee to be on. <laughs> you just go there for the meeting and that's it. <laughs> but anyway, why was I talking about that? Anyhow, what took me there? We were just talking about being busy. Hmm. Yeah, being busy. That's right, because then by t in the 80s, of course, people were at school, so I was chair of the home school here. I was, okay. I started, um, well, I think I was involved at the church at that time, which I now consider the hugest waste of time of my life. <laughs> okay. And uh, oh, just other things like cross-country Nova Scotia from time to mm -hmm. time. Hosteling, I've always been involved in hosteling, so. So there's always stuff going on, you know, and kids, children being involved in things, mm -hmm. and so on. Plus, working full time. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Yeah, Connor was born in July, <coughs> and I went back to work in September, right? Margaret was born in November. I went back to work in January, and then by the time Kate was due, teachers actually had seven weeks of maternity leave, oh, okay. and uh, so. Kate was born, Kate and Ewan were both born in December, so I took, I didn't go back to work to March break, because that kind of worked out to be the allowable amount of time that I could take for maternity leave. That's why I was talking about Spring Hill, because one of the girls who coordinates the committee just had a baby, and she's entitled to a year and a, year. a half. Oh, it's a year and a half? It's 18 yeah. months. She can take one year, and then if she wants another six months, she can take another six months. So the girl who was replacing her was just saying, well, I hope she takes 18 months because then she'd have yeah. a job. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> I think I was kind of ignorant at that time too. I didn't know, like I probably could have taken at least two weeks with extra with Connor and Margaret, you know. Yeah. So, but I just, you know, that's what you did. You had a baby and went back to work. <laughs> it's what you do. It's what you did, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you keep achieving. You just have to keep going. Mm -hmm. I always say, put your head down, <laughs> put your head down and do it. Do what you have to do. But for all that time, I had, I, I, I think in retrospect that, you know, like what was the number one song at that time? I have no idea, you know, I can't remember, you know, it would be on the radio, but 
it really wouldn't click. So I sort of got educated in music when my children started to listen to music, you know, and then I could identify some of the modern things and stuff. But it's, you know, always read, always subscribed to the newspaper, you know, Maclean's, various other magazines. So I was kept up on news and things, but like, I guess, what would you call it, popular? Yeah, popular culture. So Diane, did your children sleep through the, like... Did any of them sleep? Yeah, they were all great. Did you get sleep? Yeah, most of the time. Okay. Except those early days, you know, when you had the nurse and stuff. Yeah. No, they were... I don't know. Kate and I were talking about that the other day. It's sort of... She had free range. Free... It was methods of child rearing. Yeah. We were talking about... Free range parents. Yes. Definitely not helicopter. Yes. And not that Asian... Tiger mom, or tiger mom, or anything. Yeah, it's a free range. <laughs> Do what I say and keep out of my way. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, the lecture growing up in the woods. Everybody survived, <laughs> so that was, you know, it's kind of yeah. survival. Survival yeah. parenting. And we didn't have a TV. Yeah, no TV. Yeah. Never had a TV ever. I still don't. Yeah. As a matter of fact, when was it? 2000 was after everybody had left and the Olympics were on. Was it 2006? Would there be Olympics? Yeah, 2006. Turin. Turin, Torino. Yeah. <clears throat> I thought, well, maybe I'll get a TV because I might enjoy watching the yeah. Olympics. Yeah. All my children said, no, Mom, oh. you don't want a TV. <laughs> oh, so we came back, all right? Them, yeah, yeah. All of them okay. said no. And no. did you listen to them? I certainly did. I didn't well, get a TV. Yeah. I, yeah. I actually, I think I was going to borrow one or something, and then I just couldn't be bothered. Yeah. So, yeah. And that yeah. was before there was much on the computer. That was when, yeah, you probably still had dial-up internet and couldn't stream anything. Like, now you can just watch it all on the internet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's kind of high speed here. I mean, it's light speed <laughs> compared to the dial-up, but... Yeah, well, rural Nova Scotia, and I mm-hmm. mean everybody knows what. Uh, well, everybody in rural Nova Scotia. I mean, and I'm lucky. I have what they call high speed, but there are still so many parts of Nova Scotia that don't even have absolutely my high yeah. speed, and they want to run businesses. The bloody government, you know, that's what it is. <clears throat> They're the author of the demise of rural Nova Scotia. So when they have these big studies about, like the uh, that report done a few years ago, the now or never one. Uh, John Bragg was on the committee, and who was the chair of that committee? He was uh, the Ivany, the Ivany report, you know, now or never. And, you know, we've got to do some things for rural Nova Scotia. Well, the government closes schools in all the little towns. Mm-hmm. They don't look after the roads and all the little towns and rural places. They, <clears throat> then when you don't have schools, people, families move away, so the stores close, there aren't gas stations, there aren't any other services and so on like that. And then, there's mm-hmm. nothing here in mm-hmm. rural Nova Scotia. So how can you promote rural Nova Scotia when you can't even provide them with internet or you don't have a decent road for people mm-hmm. to get there? So, I mean, there's lots of scope for people to come t- to rural Nova Scotia to live and to work if they have their own businesses, but they have to have something like internet. To yes. Good internet, yes. you know, to, to satisfy them, to make it possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I wouldn't live anywhere else. <laughs> I can't imagine living in BC. BC is the last place. Well, apart from Alberta, it's the last place I want to live. 
Are you from Alberta? No. Oh, no. DC? No, originally, uh, and don't hold it against me, Ontario. Oh, that's all right. Ontario's fine. But, uh, you know, after being here for a number of years, I just, this, like, this is it. Yeah. This is it. It's hard to. Yeah. As inconvenient as it is, as expensive as it is, as lacking in services and so on. Still, there's still something about it that here. Yeah, there's a quality of life that you don't get. And we've lived in Hong Kong for years. We, you know, um, and there's just something about Nova Scotia. And there's a quality of life that you don't you don't get other places. Mm-hmm. But it's still, still good Hong to Kong? travel. And oh, Diane, we're here to talk about you. But <laughs> in a, like really quickly, my met my husband um, working in Northwestern Ontario and. He got hired by Cathay Pacific Airways. He's a uh, pilot. Oh. Um, so he took the job and proposed. So we got married and I you know, lived there for five years and taught and got into various things. And then, you know, when we came back to Canada, like, okay, it's going to be East or West Coast. And like East Coast won for a number of things. We were attracted to the West Coast because of mountains and, you know, it's just, it's big. But you yeah. look at the price tag of, your average house in downtown Vancouver and and you look at well how long are we spending in a car to get somewhere and how many like the density of people and you come to Nova Scotia and you can be on an ocean beach in 20 minutes and there's nobody around you or you can go to a ski hill that's 30 minutes from your house and there's nobody there on a weeknight that's right like there's nobody it's like your private ski facility Anyway, so you find the bed, yeah. you find the bed, you can be out hiking in the woods five minutes from your house, you might see one person. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, yeah it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So Diane, how about, you know, how, how did you enjoy the cross-country skiing? And you were a very competitive person. And, and how did you take to it? And, you know, tell me a little bit about what the training was like. <laughs> Well, I just more or less did whatever Brian, or followed what Brian did, uh, the running. He was a great advocate of LSD, long, slow distance. Okay. (laughs) And uh, just running and, you know, doing intervals and stuff. And I loved skiing. I mean, I actually started to ski before I met met Brian because of my time at the trail shop. And uh, it was just, you know, you got, got out and did something in the wintertime. Otherwise, it was really hard to... And I love winter, you know, I just get so frustrated with people who are always moaning and whining about winter and the mm-hmm. cold, and I just feel like telling them to go live somewhere else then, because winter's part of our, <clears throat> part of Canada, you know, mm-hmm. live with it, enjoy it, get out and do something, so... So that was it. I mean, and then when we started to live here, of course, there was snow, so you could get out and ski regularly. And, and uh, you know, this is a great place to run and do yeah. stuff like orienteering. Yeah. That was, that's all. I mean, I never followed a real training program. <clears throat> like, Ryan always had a regimen and he would seek out coaches like a running coach in Holmes Cliff. He used to go and run with Cliff Matthews. So all the kids wanted to go and run with Cliff and that sort of thing. But I think for me it was just I had to get away from the kids. <laughs> so I'll go for a run. <laughs> yeah. Or a ski. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. And did you find it helped your 
your running like it was a good was it a good balance for you to to get on those skis in the winter and it, like you would just take to that naturally oh yeah yeah for sure whether it was up here or then when we you know we used to get up early on the weekends and round up two or three day, two or three other people would come and we'd go and yeah. ski for like 40 k's on the on the uh, snowmobile trails before yeah. get out early before the snowmobiles get out on the, yeah. the trails that was always brian's philosophy you know so banging on the door get everybody up and out and i was thinking the other day we must have just left the children here well yeah you must because you guys didn't always come we you, didn't you come. never came with those early but that would, was in the 90s so you know connor was 10 11 12 kind of yeah. thing so everybody was more or less independent so and also like <clears throat> like when i started school Connor was, Connor's five years older than me. So when I started school, like we didn't have after school care. We just came home and it was Connor, Margaret, and I yeah. <laughs> all alone for an hour, an hour and a half. That's right. Yeah, so. that's why uh, we had, for a time, we had Dobermans. Everybody thinks Dobermans are such ferocious dogs, you know, but really they're just wonderful pets. But, uh, <laughs> but there were some, you know, kind of dicey characters around, and I think, and so Brian felt having Dobermans was kind of a, a safety thing for the kids. Yes. yes. <laughs> Visually, visual deterrent, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you've been an athlete and an administrator through cross-country skiing over so many years. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe you can just speak a bit to how cross-country skiing became part of your lifestyle. Oh, I think it was when I met Brian, and it was so much part of his, and he was so yeah. driven. Um, you know, I, I, he, we spent, um, I said, 73, 70. anyway, we went out west to, to work. Oh, that was 75, 76, 75, 75, I don't know, the years get all mixed up. Um, <clears throat> you know, the big thing was, for him, was to get out on early snow, so he went out west. He used to work with a the national coach at the time is Bjorger Pedersen, and he was based in Burns Lake. Brian would go out and, like, sleep in a cabin or something like that and, you know, at least be around the national team. I think he was what they call Espoir, the, like, the B team okay. <clears throat> at that time. I think he hitchhiked back and forth across the country with skis and a pack and slept in a sleeping bag and snowbanks and things like that. He talked about it. Different, different things, and then um, like that one fall before the would have been seventy six because they were trying for the Olympic. Yeah, trying. That's right, training for seventy six Olympics. He, you know, the there were going to be trials and stuff, and uh, so we went and lived in a little motel room in Canmore and went up to Sunshine Mountain every day. Walked up the hill, you know, every day. Walk uh, up that hill, yeah. ski all day, yeah. and walk back down. I mean, you're too tired to uh, make a team after you do all that training. <laughs> you know, yeah. you just kind of wear yourself out. I think that was his big thing. You know, you just train, got to train, got to train, and it's characteristic of this child as well. You know, <laughs> you don't take any time to recover, and sometimes you know, if you take some time off to recover, you're fresher and yeah, so on. So. Um, yeah, like I never had, for me it was just to get out and do something, 
you know, I didn't train specifically or anything. But because I was fairly fit and strong, big, strong country girl, I, I usually did okay in the races. Plus, there wasn't a whole lot of competition. <laughs> I mean, it's not as if I was in Ontario, for example, competing against 50 other people of equal mm -hmm. ability. So if you have a little bit of ability, you know, I always did sports at school, everything, you know, soccer, volleyball, basketball, track and field and everything. So you just kind of went through the year doing everything. Yeah. So, you know, basic fitness and agility and a little bit of ability. Mm -hmm. That's all. Yeah. So you got early snow. You went out west, got some early snow, and then you returned. Yeah, which is uh, mostly for Brian. I okay. Mean, I think I was trying to keep food on the table, you know. We never had yeah. any money. I had to buy gas for the car. We had a Volkswagen Beetle. And then we came back, and then he went. I think the trials were in Thunder Bay. I'm not sure. Was it Thunder Bay or somewhere else? But he had to go away again for the trials. So. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, then he kept on competing, and he did biathlon, and he was on the national biathlon team. So right. We all did a little bit of biathlon. Oh, nice. Everybody, yeah. But he shot the rifle. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Seems ages ago now. <laughs> well, it was. Yeah. So you took on the manager role for the 79 Canada Games? Yeah. And he was coaching? He was coaching, yeah. But, I mean, it's nothing like it is today. You know, it was just trying to make sure the kids all got on the bus and, you know, you wanted to be out there on the trail cheering them on, make sure they had their gear. I think today it's much more complicated. Like, okay. I know, I think Brian certainly had a, a coaching level certification. I only ever had maybe a level one or something. But uh, nowadays, you know, you have to have a good level of coaching. You know, and you have a wax technician and you have a... Who was the manager this year? Tara. Ah, uh, right. Yeah. So four yeah. support staff, basically. Four. Two coaches, oh, wax two staff. Two coaches, staff. Yeah. Back then, it was kind of fly by the seat of your pants. And of course, I mean, Nova Scotian athletes did well when you consider the obstacles mm. they have to face for a winter sport. You want some hot? Oh, I'm good. Thank you. Yeah. Newfoundland, but you know, most of the significant races and so on are Quebec, even Quebec, Quebec, Ontario. There are always these stories of people driving to Quebec in the wintertime. <laughs> you know, the horror stories. Yeah. Pierre has some good stories about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
taking teens away. And the roads are were so oh, much different oh, then than That's now. Right. You didn't have four lane highways. Well, there. It was a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. So he lived in primarily Nova Scotia and could compete at the national level for biathlon yeah. and be team for. That's and, incredible. And, and then uh, when he was, I mean, he competed internationally. He went to the world championships in loop holding, Germany, and was that seventy nine? I think. Yeah. And Kate was saying he started skiing when he was in his mid-teens. Yeah, I guess he 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 grew up in Montreal. Outside of Montreal, in a place called Saint Bruno. Oh right, yeah, know the yeah. area. And, uh, that there's a ski hill there. I mean, he used to do downhill skiing. Yeah. So he didn't start the cross country until he was in his teens. And when he, when the family moved back to Nova Scotia, he did his grade eleven here in Nova Scotia, and then he had a scholarship to go to Dalhousie. Um, and there was a chap at Dalhousie, Dick Abbott, who was he was the ski coach. He got a ski team started at Dalhousie. And uh, this guy was, I think he was on a, I don't know whether it was a, what do you call it, sabbatical or an exchange from the University of Ottawa because he lived in Ottawa. And he and Brian became great friends. So whenever Brian was in Ottawa, he would go and visit Dick Abbott. And I think Dick Abbott was very supportive of, uh, of uh, the ski team and of trying to get kids, you know, to races and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he was a bit of a mentor to Brian as well, you know. Yeah. He's a nice guy. Yeah. He was a bachelor, so oh my God, I remember going to his house in Ottawa <laughs> with Brian. I never saw Brian wipe his feet so many times. There were these mats all over the place, like, and you couldn't, you didn't want to get anything dirty. <laughs> so here and then here and then here. And uh, Dick said. Uh, he made a fire. We were there for supper. He made a fire in his backyard, like a real fire. And he had a little, I don't know, rake or something, or a grill, I suppose it was, over the fire. And he said, we're having, and I can't even remember whether, it was some kind of meat and onions. And that's what we had. I can't, yeah. I don't know if it was steak Not or even what. Not even potatoes. <laughs> no, it was that. Yeah, yeah, onions. Yeah. And the onions were well, virtually raw. <laughs> but, uh, you know, <laughs> interesting. So anytime Brian went off to Ottawa and was going to stay with Jeff, I said, oh, great. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah. So, Diane, you also, um, you and Brian, I read that you started, uh, like, two endurance sports for the high school, the running and a cross-country team. Yeah, I coached the cross-country team at CEC. It only survived one or two years. Okay. <laughs> Mostly because, well, gear. I mean, you had a few kids who were really, who were really keen and, and would make an effort and so on. But um, it was so foreign to that school culture. I don't know. Um, CEC is very big on team sports and, mm. and the coaches are, you know, almost professionals and everything like that. So you kind of you know, got a few kids from the outliers who weren't involved in anything else but wanted to ski or knew how to ski or at least had skis kind of thing. So we actually won a provincial title in cross-country skiing. 
the banner in the gym. Is it really? Yeah, one year we had the we had the high school competition down at the barn here. Oh, in the field. Yeah, in the field. It was one day, I remember that. And uh, I don't know if you have uh, done any talking to people from the valley like Martin Boland. He was a real cross-country builder. And Henri Medina, who taught, they both taught at uh, King's Edge Hill. Okay. Back in those days, and then Martin moved to KCA, the Kings County Academy down in Kenville. But they always had ski teams, so we had, and then there were like the Prince Andrew and Dartmouth High, so there were, I forget how many schools there were, but I remember it was really quite a big thing, you know, and we did, CC did quite well that year against these other schools that had more experience and better skiers and so on. So that and uh, yeah, and then the cross country running, and again that was new. Um, but there were always kids, you know, that were keen to run and mm-hmm. you know would make the effort. And uh, I just remember always being so shocked. Uh, had a kid who was a good runner, wanted to run, wanted to run with the team, but was also trying. Oh, this happened a couple of times. One was Dan Henniger. Oh, really? Yeah, one of the best cross country runners ever in yeah. Nova Scotia. He was playing soccer at the time, and the soccer coach said, you choose. If you wow. want to be on the soccer team, don't go to cross-country running. And the other one was a volleyball player. And the volleyball coach said, no, you can't go. Cro- if you want to be on the vo- volleyball team, you can't, you can't do cross-country running. And I always used to think, I mean, that was so short-sighted in a way on the part of those coaches because the cross-country season was short. It was in mm-hmm. the fall. And I mean, when you run, you're getting in shape, and why wouldn't you want an athlete in shape for your volleyball team or for your soccer team yeah. or whatever? So, anyway, so it was always kind of discouraging that way, you know, yeah. to have to have the other coaches not be supportive. But I shouldn't say that too loudly. <laughs> and so, how how many years did you? try for the cross-country team? Was it just two years then that it lasted with the high school or was it longer? Yeah, with the running or the... With the cross-country with skiing. skiing with the, oh, skiing was only there for a couple of years. Just a couple, just years. A couple of years. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> I remember uh, the school, where the school was situated, there was a field across from it. And uh, when we had snow, we, we would go over there and ski after yeah. school. And do a you know we could do a little bit of instruction and so on, and that we had to climb across the fence. It belonged, I think it belonged to Stanfields that field, and I mean it was never, never really mowed short, so you know there'd be grass and so on. But yeah. anyway, we could ski. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And so then it was just running. The running, I sort of kept my finger in the running. Mm-hmm. feel sorry for high school sports. Uh, you know, coaches, well, of course, I guess if you're getting into it now, <clears throat> you're used to it and it's easy, but even in my last years, it, 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 this the liability issue to take a team of five or six people to a running meet in Antigonish, you know, you need to have all the permission forms, the parental permission forms, yeah. their insurance, and then you have to provide your insurance, and you have to ask if you have another parent driving, because there's never a school vehicle that will take cross-country people anyway. 
So you have to ask uh, the parent for the insurance coverage, and then it all has to be on a file and phone numbers. And oh my, I just feel sorry for. You know, I think a lot of people that coach really coach because they love a sport and they just want to share. They just want to share their knowledge or their ability and encourage other people to get involved. It isn't always the high performance goal, you know what I mean? And uh, bureaucracy or administration just throws up all these barriers. So you just say, oh my God, it can't be bothered. Yeah. And this carries over too. Like I've always, ever since we've been here, I've been involved with the hostel. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we used to have all kinds of school groups that would come to the, to the hostel during the wintertime. They would do outdoor, winter outdoor education, winter camping, activities, cross-country skiing, snowshoeing, and so on. This, I think their uh, J.L. Ilsley School still comes faithfully once a year, but I think that's the only one that does. Wow. They do an outdoor education um, component. Mm-hmm. You know, and I taught French, and uh, different times I brought a class that I would have in honors grade twelve or grade eleven class, and I would bring them to the hostel to do like a twenty four hour immersion. Yes. You know, so they came Friday after school. They had to make supper, do the cleanup, and and then you know we did various games and activities, and the next day we might do a hike or something like that. But yeah. it was in French, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it was only a half an hour, 40 minutes from Truro, yet, and I was head of the department, and yet none of the other French teachers ever seemed interested in doing anything like that. It's kind of, uh, I don't know, just disappointing. Mm-hmm. But nobody, I, I, I totally understand now why teachers are reluctant to take that on. It's just too, it's headaches you don't need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what are the what are some of the changes you've seen in you know your teachers you've been so close to that younger dem- demographic how have you seen sports change over the years like through your time teaching um, sports This used to be two rooms, kind of like okay. a room here and then a room there and so on. Anyway, um, so that was here. That was sort of one of the best features. But uh, when I retired, I added this window to the bay window. It used to be this too, so that brightened everything up, and I put in hardwood flooring. And, yeah. 
Yeah, just made it there. I like light. I don't want curtains. So. That's a nice thing about living in the country, too. You don't need to have <laughs> yeah. <don't> curtains. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's incredible. Yeah. And then yeah. a couple of years ago, I added those. If you have to go to the bathroom, there's one okay. right there. <laughs> I just added those. That used to be sort of an exterior porch. Okay. That looked pretty awful. <clears throat> so I had it enclosed, and I have a sunroom now. And a bathroom. Oh, it's nice. It's peaceful. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and it's handy yeah. to have a bathroom on the main floor. I tell you that. Otherwise, we'd be going upstairs or downstairs all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you see in, in Brian's uh, coaching ability? And, and I've heard, you know, so many favorable things about Brian and how he could reach athletes. And, you know, we've spent some time around him coaching yeah. on and as a manager. What, what did you see? How, what were those qualities that he had that he could reach and inspire athletes? Well, I think he always, uh, like he worked really hard himself, like he wasn't okay telling people to do something that he wouldn't do, and he always just really drove himself, you know, Yeah. Uh, and if, you know, he wanted people to go and run 10Ks, well, he'd go and train 15, that, you know, he just yeah. did that, but, and he was, uh, you know, he's personable, talkative, had, had the war stories to tell, you know, of the past, and that's always entertaining, you know, for younger, younger people. So, well, I think it was just that combination of personality and, and uh, personal drive and personal, you know, he wanted to be fit too, and I was very competitive, you know, yeah. very competitive, uh, you know, he, he'd always want the athletes to be better. To be better than him, but he always tried to be better than them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, yeah, but just, you know, easy to talk to. And I think he had moments when he could inspire, probably, but we probably all do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, hit the right notes at times. So. But the work ethic, I think, was the big thing, that, like the, the training ethic. I mean, he has, he kept meticulous training logs, like, oh, I was cleaning out the office there the other year, and his training logs, you know, like, what his heart rate was, what his, oh, wow. his, uh, you know, the number of times he, you know, how many sit-ups or dips or whatever exercises he did, the quantity, the time, you know, training, what he spent doing long distance, what he spent doing yeah. interval type thing, you know, just meticulous records, so he had all of that. And he could, you know, people would come and he could go back and take a look at training log and look my back in 1978, I did this and this and this. Yeah. So, yeah. so the science. Yeah, I suppose. He left the and science he behind it. self-educated as well. Yeah. yeah. About that, because he never really had uh, a coach, like as an athlete, he didn't really have any coaches um, who would have had a lot more knowledge than mm -hmm. he did. So that was part of it too, probably. Yeah. So what did you um, 
like seeing them interact with athletes what do you what do you you know what's one of your best stories or you know what's something that's really memorable that that he would bring to the table as a coach well he always made fun of people like he had a very sarcastic uh, sense of humor and if you look at one of these photo albums over here I remember on the day of his funeral there were people here and we were talking and laughing about things that he said and did at uh, training camps and there's some pictures there like Ron Mitchell stretched out like this and so he has a circle around his feet and the caption is Ron's brains <laughs> that, that, kind of, that kind of thing so but um, he was sarcastic. I mean, he yeah. could, it could hurt, I'm he, sure. And probably he wasn't as, say, sensitive to okay. athletes. Like if they weren't tough and ready to go and wanted to do 25 kilometers, then he'd say, oh, you know, well, all right, go do that or something else. Like I don't think he was, you know, too always in tune with maybe <laughs> the needs of athletes like okay oh uh, and today <laughs> what did i say yesterday i'm so sick and tired of hearing people complain about mental illness <laughs> 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 don't put that on the no no, yes. no 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 <laughs> yeah but i think today there's this i don't know whether we're overly or maybe just totally much more aware of all the psychological yeah of athletes and yeah. people in general so and I don't think we were too sensitive to that yeah to that well dad was not politically correct so I think you would have some struggles adjusting to some elements of political correctness today mm -hmm. but I remember at high school track running there was a girl who you know came out pretty faithfully wasn't great and I remember him telling her that if she lost like 15 or 20 pounds she'd probably be a minute or two faster <laughs> like that's just not stuff you say to a teenage no. female runner. Right? No. Like even then. And he would tease. And yeah. one of I mean, she's a dear, dear friend. She was a student of mine and she came out. She actually did some no, she didn't ski because she did figure skating. So she couldn't ski. But she did cross country running faithfully and, and track. And she did fairly well and she does really well now and she's a really good skier now, Teresa. Teresa Grant, oh, but Brian would be always teasing her about Gary Lake. <laughs> Teresa, and he would say to Connor, like if the children were with us under track me, you go tell Teresa, come on, run fast, Harry Lake. <laughs> Just, you know, you wouldn't do that today. No. No. He seemed to get away with it to a certain extent, you know, because just the power of his personality but I don't think anybody would put up with that today yeah. they would just tell him to go pound sand or something you know and uh, I heard many stories many times so uh, I would and he would say oh guys heard this before so <laughs> yeah you know he liked to tell stories about what had happened or you know this kind of thing Yes. Yeah. So what was his best story? What was, the, what was the story he, you know, one of his top five stories that he told <laughs> the most or most proud of? or. Well, there's one really cute one about, and Carl Purcell, who is a guy you really should talk to as well, because he precedes, like, 
us. He was involved in skiing, you know, before we were. Uh, and it was a ski race down at Point Pleasant Park um, in Halifax. I don't know how many people would have been part. I wasn't there. I didn't know Brian at that time, but but it was classic, you know, and the double pulling. And he said, "Carl, Carl was coming along, double pulling, and he put both his baskets over his tips of his skis." <laughs> <laughs> You know, because we used to have the bamboo poles with the big baskets, so yeah. you can see that happening. Yeah. So that was funny. I, I right offhand, I I don't know. I can't remember. I remember him telling stories about like when he was in Scandinavia, getting in two car accidents within twenty minutes with this. Oh right, that the guy the American he was traveling with. Yes. It depended on like. The audience. Or, yeah, the audience. Circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And then, you see, he worked for several years as a federal fishery officer. So there were lots of stories connected with that, like kayaking down rivers at night and stand, or, you know, staking out things and trying yeah. to catch people. And he said he used to bike to work to, to, to uh, Wallace and back. He would bike. And uh, early in the fishing, fishing season, He would check the fishing spots, like on his way to work, kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway, there were some people doing something. Like, don't know what it was, but uh, and one of them tried to run away, <laughs> run away, and so Brian just ran after him. You know? Yeah. And so then, like people knew, we were weird. You know, we were unusual for Wentworth, kind of thing. But anyway, people knew Brian was fit because. You don't always see people running and biking and motor skiing in Wentworth. We were just weird, but uh, they knew he could run. And so I guess all his buddies were saying, "And you tried to run away from him, you know." So, that kind of yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. I can't remember anything offhand. And so he really drafted a lot of people into cross-country skiing in this area and in the province. And yeah, was not in this pivotal, area. <laughs> not in this area. Not in this area. Okay. But that element, you know, uh, that athletic element, people who would go to, say, 10, 10K running races or yes. you know, the triathlons. Because he got into triathlons and duathlons and all that. So there were all those people <clears throat> who... You know, like I say, who were fit and didn't do anything in the wintertime. And so, I mean, cross-country yeah. ski skating was ideal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, but around here, we, yeah. And uh, when we moved here, uh, there was another couple who had moved here from out west or from Ontario or somewhere who lived up on the Swallow Road. And I remember meeting her, and she, like me, had not taken her husband's name when she got married. <laughs> and the thing is, everybody in the community knows everybody, right? You know, we didn't know anybody, but they all knew who we were. Same with these folks up with it. So finally, when I met Jan, uh, as she said, Oh, she said, she said, so-and-so down at the store, when they heard about you, they said, 
oh, just like you, she didn't change her name, you know, like they knew all these kinds of things, just small country, oh, yes. country stuff, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, we would do roller skiing, and that was really weird. Because <laughs> no, nobody roller skied. Yeah. So. Yeah. And what, what areas did you roller ski? Was it like just the side of the highway? Yeah, or? on the roads. Yeah. yeah. On the roads, like there's a road that goes between Roberts and Tatamagrish. Yeah. And, uh, so we, that's usually where we would go. Yeah. <sighs> just you yeah. Know, go out five or six skis and then back. And in those days, I'm thinking, do they have brakes now? No. Nope. Oh, I heard. <clears throat> someone told me a story about how they were in Italy or someplace like that, and a group of roller skiers came up the mountain, and they were going to ski back down, and they somehow had wireless brakes through their poles. Like, they gripped their pole a certain way and it would apply brakes on the roller skis. Oh, but my goodness. I don't know if that's just they were pulling their leg or what. Because <laughs> the brakes would have to be wireless. And, yeah. like, if you don't have wireless brakes on bikes or mm. I'm less inclined to believe that they have yeah. one yeah skis especially because there's no place to put the brake that's right you can get some that have brakes but they actually are pretty hazardous yeah. so did you go as a family roller skiing then or no. were those the days no. that was you and Brian before yeah. kids yeah and yeah. most of the time see like I was busy right yeah so if I wanted to do something with my husband. I'd go and do what he did. Yeah. Roller ski, run. Yeah. I always used to say I never really skied with Brian. Never really ran with Brian. I would start with him. Or I would drive to the start of the ski with him and then come back. But you know, it wasn't there just because he was faster, you know, and you know, it's boring when you're trying to ski and you just want to go at your own pace and yeah. And, uh, but you guys would do bike rides together on the folding bikes. Oh, well, that was not, how many times did we do that? Ten yeah. Enough times <laughs> that it's memorable. <laughs> yeah, not very often. Yeah. And so he was quite a trail builder as well. Um, so the McDonald's Sports Park. He designed, yeah, he designed those. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. And uh, the Canada Games Trails in uh, Cape North. Uh, he started those. They were finished by, uh, what's his name, from New Brunswick, I think, because somebody up there got mad at Brian, but anyway, uh, that. And then he was chief of race in 1991 for the PEI, Canada Games, for biathlon. Right. Okay. So he was back and forth there and had something to do with trails. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. 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 Did he do the trails at Ski Wentworth, too? Oh, he did, yeah. 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 Top ski run. Yeah. He designed everything. Yeah. So, Good. Diane, you were the glue here. That's what I'm just getting the picture <laughs> of all this. And I mean, I've got three kids that are all two years apart. So, those years, those hairy years, and you're full time, there's no maternity leave, and you get the house going, and yeah. and he trained. Yeah. And so, how, like, how many hours would he commit to training just through the years, you know? Well, he didn't really have a full-time job until I started school. Oh, at least. Yeah. Yeah. He was yeah. well into his 30s before he actually had a full-time job. 
Well, that's good to know. I'm following following family yeah. tradition there. Honor the same way. Different circumstances, though. You know, and the thing was, I had, I always had a, I had a permanent full time job. So you know, there was always income, and that's how we were able to start our business. Because we never would have bought a loan from yeah. the bank to buy a property if, if you know, they, if they looked at the way we had been living before, so. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, just uh, kept things going and, uh, you know, always had, had sort of the stable income and that yeah. kind of thing, so. So you just had this can-do attitude where, it, like, you made it happen. Well, you don't have a choice. Yeah. <laughs> you, like I say, you put your head down. Yeah. And so you mentioned you were raised on a on a farm. Yeah. And so do you see tie-in from, uh, you know, does that can-do attitude come from that lifestyle of growing up on a farm? and? Partly, I think. Um, um, youngest of seven. I was the youngest of seven. So always accused of being spoiled and... <laughs> I'm the youngest of three, so I'm getting I'm getting this. Okay. Oh, it's so tiresome, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. Because you know you did just as much work and or else you tried harder yeah. to feed. And she did all the meal preparation. And then for an animal. Then you know, I milked the cows before I would go to school when I was in grade eleven and twelve because my sister had graduated before me. She went to UNB. And so I would go to burn milk a cow before school kind yeah. of thing. So there was that. And then the garden, we always had to be garden because the garden fed us all winter like potatoes, carrots, turnips, and apple trees. You had to pick the apples. And just So I, that's what I saw. Yeah. When you see, that's what you see growing up. It just, yeah. that's what you kind of do, I suppose. Yeah. And then she, she went back to teaching. So, I mean, I went to a one-room school till I was grade six. Um, then we had to, you know, walk down to school and back. And then, and then it was a rural school, so we were getting on the bus. But I mean, she was still teaching, and she would leave before we would get on the bus. So it was up to us to make sure the dishes were done and. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, get to school and back. And yeah. Everything. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. We'd carry the wood. We had to, you know, make sure there was wood, wood in, you know, in, for the wintertime, for the furnace, for the kitchen stove and everything. She didn't even have an electric stove until, well, certainly well after I had left home. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, made the jam, made jam, made pickles, made boiled maple syrup, everything on the wood stove in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Anyway, I mean, this rural farm life. Yeah. Not the big farms today, just yeah. the little, what do you call them? Subsistence? Well, sub subsistence farming, yeah. 
yeah. egg systems farming, I guess it would be for us. Because, I mean, like my father, well, they went through the Depression that age, right? And one thing my father used to say was, nobody had any money. It was There just wasn't any money around. Yeah. But people always had something to eat. They always had food. Like, you didn't have to worry about starving, I think, like the people in the cities did or anything. Because... You know, people had gardens or apple trees. You know, we had apple yeah. trees. I remember getting up. Like we'd have, you know, in the fall there might be a hurricane or like a big wind. And I remember my mother getting us up early, like five o'clock or something, to go out and pick the apples out before the cows got them, because <laughs> we needed those apples for the winter. Yeah. Yeah. So we'd be yeah. out picking the apples up off the ground. Yeah. So yeah. Wow. So then you you live that. And then you, you take all of those skills and you, like, just through those albums that Kate lent me, it's just this extraordinary life and really giving back to the community at the same time. Try to. In addition yeah. to your athletic yeah. achievements. And and was that, what, what did you take most from competitive sports? Because you obviously just, you took to it. Took to the running. Yeah, well, everybody likes to. Well, maybe not everybody, but you just compete, you want to do your best, you want to try to win if you can, you know, yeah. there's, there's, I think, I think there's a competitive streak in just about everybody, yeah. you know, and uh, I think mine was developed because my sister, who's two years older than I am, she was a super athlete, she could do everything, she used to, she, people used to come and visit, and my father would say, Jay, jump over the fence, show people how you can jump, <laughs> she would go and jump over, you know, that kind of thing, and, and one of my strongest memories was going to a high school track meet um, in Windsor. I think probably would have been a, like a regional meet kind of thing. And uh, I got, I think, one second and three third place ribbons. But of course, Jay had four or five first place ribbons, right? And I remember showing these to my father, and he said, well, those aren't any good. They're not first and I took those ribbons and hid them in a book. <laughs> I was embarrassed. Yeah. Wow. But, you know, you couldn't ever be as good as Jay, so you had to do your best. And get away from that father that always wanted you to win. <laughs> yeah. That's what it was. But you and Dad never put any pressure. Like, I never felt any pressure to win or that second or third or whatever wasn't good enough. So mm -hmm. you didn't pass that down. You guys weren't tough enough. And so you competed through your, your adulthood. I think I read, read one article where you, God, you had one of your children and then you were running a race or you were competing like it was just a short time later yeah, um, but you stayed competitive to you know join races and yeah. um so did that help you as a as an athlete um to compete like did it help you motivate you for your training or oh yeah and sanity <laughs> yeah um, keeps you sane just having to get out and and do that you know, probably half of those competitions I might not ever have gone to if Brian hadn't been competing too. 
you know, because he was the one who always knew where the races were, what they were, 10K here, 10K there, do this, do that. And so, yeah. you know, just went along and did them as well in the female division kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And did you keep your training up through having your children, like when they were in that one through uh, eight to. ages? Yeah. yeah. Just, well, I mean, then it's just a case of, all right, you guys cope. I'm going out for half an hour to run up and down the hill or something like that. Yes, yeah. You know, so. Yeah, and then just becomes part of that lifestyle that you're entering races through the years and then your kids draft up into it. Yeah, more or less they get dragged along. And I mean, whether they wanted to or not. I mean, we spent two or three years. We had this great big blue van <laughs> that we used for moving bees. It was like a cargo van. And Brian put two bus seats in. You remember the bus seats in the oh, van? Yeah. Seats from the school bus. <laughs> and the bus. With seatbelts. Oh, they had seatbelts, I think. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, and for a couple of years anyway, you know, we would load everybody into this. We'd get, be getting the children up. Early like in the morning, in the get morning. in the van because we're going to somewhere. Parley Beach. Let's go. Parley Beach. Yarmouth. Parley Beach. Yarmouth. Yeah. Mel Murphy, Newfoundland yeah. a few times with this van. So, so, so that Brian could compete in his, in the triathlon. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so the kids all saw that, you know. Yeah. It's normal for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was kind of normal, but I, you know. <clears throat> I'm sure yeah. there was probably a certain amount of resentment there as well for you know why why do I have to go and then they get a little bit older they, you, you know when they get to be 10 or 11 then you think they can stay home it's alright because <laughs> yeah. Connor used to go and ski at the ski hill yeah. and, you know and he was responsible he could make sure the dogs were fed and stuff yeah. like that yeah and then when your your kids got involved in the cross country ski community as well, um, anything you have to share about that or any? Well, they just all tried. You know, you have the little skis. You start yeah. them off, kind of thing, and it's so boring trying to teach them how to ski. But go do it yourself, kind of thing. But we used to try and uh, to make sure they, you know, had the opportunity. And mm -hmm. I know Margaret when she was little. We had a race up at the top of the ski hill, and I remember her doing that, doing that, being involved in that, and and uh, I, <laughs> so I must have been doing two loops or something, and she might have been doing one. So I came along, and <laughs> she was sitting on the bank, saying, "I have to pee." <laughs> Poor thing, you know. She was probably I don't know five or six and stuff, and I don't think I even stopped to help her. <laughs> I'll be back. <laughs> I'm sure the children must have horror stories about how they were neglected and <laughs> or given the opportunity to cope and figure it out, right? I mean, that's more There's always a rainbow. <laughs> and then, did you get involved? Did you find yourself involved administratively or or otherwise as your kids were going through their cross country ski years? Not too much. No, mm -hmm. I don't think I was. No. Like compared yeah. to this generation of the ski team, mm, I would say not. Like the parents weren't as involved, and I think it's because, like you and Dad put a lot of your time in before you had kids, or like Pierre and Mara Troy put a lot of their time in before they had kids. So by the time that like I was on the ski team or Margaret was on the ski team, like 
you guys had already done 10 years of coaching yeah. and managing yeah. and yeah. you had jobs and other other commitments yeah. and there were other volunteers and there were other volunteers that was the next thing yeah. you know because yeah. you, you can't keep coaching forever you know you want somebody else to take it on yeah. it's like grooming the trails here so that people could ski you know when we started skiing there were no groomers you just broke your own trail right and then yeah. we did races on those trails and everything you'd get up get up and uh, go up and ski in the trail and then you'd race on it so you might already have skied 10 k's before you raced you know nobody today would do anything like that yeah um you know working hard to make sure there was a trail kind of thing and uh eventually we got a snowmobile and then so brian would groom the trails well then he just got worn out you know he'd spend a couple of hours driving around the snowmobile yeah. trying to groom the trails and then he you know he didn't he wouldn't feel like skiing you know so you just kind of get tired of of that after yeah. a while you know you're doing and doing for everybody else and yeah. you never have a chance to ski so i think that's why when he discovered the snowmobile trails and the grooming that's that's it yeah that was yeah really it was like heaven you know yeah. and oh uh, yeah of course snowmobile trails weren't always good too but i had an interesting conversation with pierre this winter you know and he said that's why he people like him and paul and like brian and i we were strong skiers because we always we never had or very rarely had these perfect conditions yes. that everybody has today. Yes. Today everybody has lovely conditions to ski on, you know, we'd be going up the hills like this. You know, because it'd be like one or two snowmobile tracks. So. Yeah. Yeah. Just you know, and you can always they're never level and flat, you know, because the snowmobiles go by and there are tracks, so you're always sort of adjusting your balance or this or that kind of thing. So yeah. yeah, and muscling through. Yeah, at some point. And uh, nobody <coughs> wants like a few few years. You know, one of Brian's big accomplishments really was organizing the honeypot. Oh right, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think it's seventy seven maybe was the first one. He had this idea we'll do this because we kept bees right at the time and we had quite a bit of honey. So he wanted a limited market for honey. You want to get a little bit of money back. So anyway, he said. Uh, he had this idea of organizing this ski race, and it was up here. We did it on these trails up here. I don't know how long it would have been, 13, 15, 20 Ks, or whatever. And uh, and then uh, whoever won, well, he would take the top five times, average that time, and everybody who skied within that time won honey. Nowadays, we have fewer numbers. I mean, at one time we had 200 people skiing the honeypot wow. up here. The Richardsons all came wow. through the kitchen. Huh. Our mother was here. You were in one of those little baby chairs <laughs> sitting on the couch by the sink. So that would have been 1984, five. You were born in 84. Yeah. That would have been like 85. February of 85 yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and the purpose of the honeypot was to raise money for the provincial ski team. So he did that for years, and we did it up here. Then we did some over at the top of the ski hill. Um, then Sue Hill organized it for a few years, kept it going because it, you know, you'd always get a few hundred bucks for the team, which was yeah. great. Pardon me. And then uh, 
it wasn't held for a few years, and I thought it would be kind of neat to do another honey bot and do it on the snowmobile trails. So that was part of the reason why I joined and made a big donation to the Cumberland Club because they have really nice sort of perfect loop, a 15K loop that we could use. <coughs> and they were very open to having the ski event there and you know, were willing to groom and everything for us. So, so we had it over there two times, two years. And I know the first year we had it over there, everybody complained. Oh, we had to drive so far. It was so far from Halifax. The roads were so awful. I nearly got lost, or I did get lost, and so on. And then they complained about snowmobile trails because they didn't think they were smooth enough or good enough, you know. So most of the people weren't all that happy. I think it was just too far away. So we had it there a couple of times. And uh, then we didn't have snow. The snowmobile club was still willing, you know, they'd have helped me in any way. But just the dates we chose, there wasn't mm -hmm. enough snow and so on. So anyway, we got the honeypot back this year and put it in Victoria Park and had a good turnout and raised some money for the team. So now, the money we raise, we sort of, we split it between the team and the Brian Scallion Memorial Fund, which is used to support athletes. So, and we have another event started by a good friend of Brian's the year he died called the Do It Like Brian Duathlon. And that's a, a running and a mountain biking event. And that money goes into the Brian Scallion Fund. Yeah, nice. So, yeah, so the honeypot. But we kept these until uh, sort of the mid-90s. Yeah and then sold them to a chap in DeBert, who's quite a big beekeeper, and he's a, he's a friend of mine, you know, he comes by, keeps bees on my property here, and then Wallace, and so on. And he gives me a case of honey every year, kind of thing. Yeah. So he comes in, and uh, he, he and I like scotch. He likes scotch, and uh, usually when he's uh, <coughs> coming around in the fall with his case of honey, you know, he usually gets to my place sort of in the afternoon, four or five it's kind of thing because he's been on the road all day delivering honey you know to all the, these places where he keeps bees so uh and he'll come in and he'll say oh i always leave the favorite to the last because he doesn't have a big scum. anyway one morning <laughs> this truck drove up and there was paul with his case of honey and everything and i said geez i said you're, he said yeah you're first on my list this year and i said well how about a drink and he said well anyway so we had a couple of drinks because I had a nice scotch I wanted him to try. And he said, so when he left, he said, oh, he said, it'll be tea from now on. <laughs> <laughs> right. But he's really good about, about the honey. And I, like if we continue to have it at Victoria Park and so on, I'm sure we can call him a sponsor. I, I yeah. know he'd give us another case. So. Yeah. Mom, I was throwing around the idea of doing a retro honey pot. Yes. Which would be like on these trails, ungroomed. And I, I mentioned that to, to Dan and Chris Doyon, and they were both super keen. I think it'd be a oh, much Chris more... Chris Doyon. Chris Doyon, too. Oh, I thought it was Chris Algar. Yeah, no, it was him. Chris Doyon. So I think it'd be a much more limited market in terms of, A, who was going to do a classic race, B, on ungroomed trails. <laughs> uh, and the weather has to cooperate, but yeah, yeah. it would be fun. But it would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, old school. I just... Yeah, that attitude does 
creep out across so many areas where you wouldn't consider complaining, you know. And nowadays, oh, this wasn't right. This wasn't perfect. Um, yeah, and that will come out and bite this generation. I think so, too. Yeah. Uh, so I think yeah. those old school events are really a great idea it's a way of paying tribute and also exposing yeah. that those new like round up some kids like this is how it used to be done let's go and and uh, I think yeah. it's, a, it's a good piece yeah well, it's like, a piece Lilla and I sometimes laugh we're like how like it's amazing we still ski because we we classic skied on these trails all through our years on the provincial ski team and you know we'd go and we'd race against people from New Brunswick with perfect grooming perfect snow they're yeah. not like skiing down a mountain bike trail where there's there's every possibility your skis are going to go under a tree and your ankles are going to be above that tree yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. that's right eh? yeah so that's you know when you think about the accomplishments of people like brian or you know dan or his brother ian and some of the other boys you know that have done really well and my daughter margaret who did well she was you know sort of B team material and so on. So, yeah, it's amazing that they have gone so far and done so well when you consider the circumstances that they had to Mm -hmm. use. Mm -hmm. So, how do you think you've uh, kind of inspired or set the track for your, your kids to be in this? competitive can-do mindset I mean you led by example obviously you know they saw Brian competing and they went along in the van to the triathlons and dogs you know but it seems like you have a fairly you know capable kids they're doing well they're finding a lot of a lot of good in life and I think that's one example I mean that's and no sympathy yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> there was no point in complaining if something hurt because wasn't that, gonna make a difference. Right. Yeah, yeah. But there were many sulky times too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's your favorite year? Oh my goodness! I think any year I'm still alive. <laughs> I'm happy. Yeah. <laughs> Highlights. Yeah. Favorite highlights? Oh, favorite uh, moments? Highlights? Well, I'm very happy that all my children are doing well. Yeah. You know, I say, <coughs> we had four children. They are all educated. And I say, I always say this to people, you bring your kids up to be independent. They have to be independent. Then they go away. You can't keep them here. You wouldn't want yeah. to, right? So you miss them when they go away. Yeah. And all you can hope for is that they come back yeah. to visit. Yeah. And they do, sometimes for a month. <laughs> <laughs> Preload. Yeah. But that's yeah. fine. I mean, that's really what it is. I don't know about other highlights. Fun. Related to sports, I don't, you know, I don't have any big sports accomplishments, you know. So, just. Yeah, surviving, I guess. <laughs> well, Sue Hill tells a story of um, mom coming back from the hospital 
and promptly handing me as an infant off and saying, someone take this baby, I need to go skiing. Uh, wouldn't have been just for the hospital, that's for sure. You uh, came home from the hospital while Margaret had her broken leg. Oh. She had fallen from the tree, and she had her broken leg. And I remember, you know, when I was expecting you, going to Halifax different times, because she was in the IWK yeah. for a time. And uh, that's when uh, we had an old armchair, and she would sit across the arm of the armchair because she had a cat like this. And I remember, I don't know who was here with her, it might have been grandmother, I think Shirley came and then grandmother came, because I was only in overnight one night with, with you guys. Uh, and uh, when I came in the door, Margaret said, Mom, I can walk. Like she'd, she'd had her cast off, I think, by that time, and she was able to sort of walk on her own without using anything. So, was that was kind of fun. Yeah. 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 Well, Diane, have I forgotten to ask you anything, or is there anything you want to add? Or, you know, if you had some some message to a family, say, say it's a beginner family that's thinking about taking up cross-country skiing, what would you tell them? Just make your kids do it. <laughs> Don't give them a choice. <laughs> Don't give them a choice. Yeah. It's like somebody said to me, never give a two-year-old a choice. Don't say, do you want orange juice or apple juice? Give them juice and say, drink it. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Just do it. <laughs> just do just it. Do just, it. Just, just go do know. it. Yeah. And, and, and don't just do one thing. Do all kinds of things. You know, run, ski, bike, jump. If you play a team sport, you know have fun yeah. with it but yeah. I used to get frustrated too this wasn't like coaching at high school remember Justine yeah McClellan good little runner really good runner you know slim she was yeah. petite really yeah and she could have done well I think at university running she went to Acadia and spent two or three years sitting on the bench because she wanted to play soccer she made the soccer team I don't like she had played you know we're very very little yeah so you know just yeah. like 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 I see that as kind of a waste of talent, you know, because I think sometimes kids themselves focus too much. I want to be on the volleyball team, so I'm just going to play volleyball and concentrate on the volleyball, whatever, hockey yeah. or baseball. But I just, you know, I think I think you become a better person in general if you expose yourself to all kinds of different things, you know, yeah. travel and other people and other cultures. I mean, we don't have much variety here in Wentworth, but, you know, you have to get out of your shell and don't be afraid to go off and do things. You just have no. to have the courage to, to do it. And don't always have to go with a friend. Go on your own, you know. Like some kids don't want to do anything unless their buddy is with them or something. Well, go off, go do it on your own. You can do it. Yeah. But no, I'm not. I don't really have <laughs> from that you know yeah well thank you for having me here today and answering so many questions well, it's a remarkable welcome. life you led diane it's uh yeah it's amazing high achiever <laughs> well i don't know 
still lots to do. Yeah. Yeah. So what sort of, uh, you might mean you look like you're in fantastic shape. Are you still getting out lots and... Uh... I do lots and lots of walking. I can't run anymore. I'm actually going to have a hip replaced and then probably okay. another hip replaced sometime this okay. year. Um, I So I haven't been able to do much skiing. Uh, yeah. You know, that limits that. Um, and there were some days this year when I just thought, oh, I really would have loved to go skiing because the conditions were just so, yeah. so perfect, you know. But um, I didn't want to take a chance breaking things or falling over and not getting up and that kind of stuff. But I can bike. I can bike. Oh, good. Bike, walk. I usually go a couple times a year. I go to the UK and do hiking trips. I've been doing that for yeah. several years. But yeah. yeah. I didn't go this year because I thought this hip thing was coming up right away, but it, now it looks like it's going to be June or something. So maybe I should go away in May after all. <laughs> okay. Last minute trip to the Highlands. Yeah. 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 Wow. Uh, but I'm still involved with, uh, like, hosteling. I've been involved with hosteling for a hundred years, kind of thing. Okay. And uh, for a few years, I was on, on the board over at the Ships Company Theater in Parisboro. Okay, yeah. And, uh, and like, this prison committee is new. So, yeah, you know, just a variety. Involved, just a very variety involved. Of things, yeah. You know, and that's, I like listening to the radio, you know. Yeah. Try to keep up with news and current events and stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, fair, just busy enough, like with this business that I have, this property business, it just keeps me busy enough so that I don't waste a lot of time. So. Yeah. And uh -huh. two, two little grandkids. I have two grandchildren mm, who just okay. can walk to my house. Oh, really? How lucky am I? Yes. Yeah. That is. That's pretty exciting. It is. <laughs> Yeah, one's five and one is three. Okay. And, uh, yeah, that's my older son, Connor. He just lives down the road here. Yeah. And yeah. they walk up here. Walk yeah. Oh, that's nice. That's busy ages, walk. too. They're fun. Those yeah. are fun years. Yeah. They're yeah. Really cute. Yeah. They're busy. <laughs> you forget how, uh, uh, you know, sometimes I just kind of wonder how I coped with everything, you know, because I have my. I'll have grandchildren for two hours, and I think, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I, I don't say anything, um, but I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for young parents with one or two children who say how busy they are, or how they have to get away and have holidays and stuff. But, you know? Yeah. But yeah. it's different times different expectations and, and you know you I just feel like you have to keep the strengths from the previous generation and apply them to where the current generation you're in and I find myself surrounded by because I had three kids and you meet different people along the way and I have roots in athletic competitive teams and all of a sudden your group of who you're hanging around with shifts because you're in a different around a different demographic because you have like three kids and your husband's away and then all of a sudden it's the neighbors that are close by or there's people that you wouldn't normally be around yeah but they're part of your life because you have these three little and right. but it's how some people it's that train of thought of 
I'm so tired. I'm so busy. I'm so, I'm like, you're sitting here having coffee. I don't know. You've done a lot of things <laughs> the last 30 minutes. Right. But it's that, it yeah. seems to be a prevalence seems to be prevalent in in today's society and some of the people I was around were maybe five six ten years younger and then it's even more so than you know and and so similar to you I find it hard to have that sympathy Sympathy. I feel for them but because they can't help themselves yeah and, they, and they have so much more. And they're just holding themselves back. I see it as, yeah. you know, they're they're almost their own worst enemy. Mm-hmm. You know. But they have things like automatic washers and dryers. Yeah, and an electric stove. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> my, right? So my father was born in 1929, so he was he was old for a, for a dad. But I find it's all of those, like those stories you told were similar to, say, the stories that he would tell. He didn't tell too many. It was mostly his brother that we'd go and visit uh-huh. and get all the stories from the uncle who's a yeah. bachelor uh, that wanted to talk. But, right. you know, you use those strengths and you apply them and and it just looked like you're just, uh, just seem to be such a role model for people today. Like so strong and, yeah. you know, I just wonder what that next generation is going to have. What are they going to rely on? Yeah. That's right? a great, it's, that's a, it's a dilemma, on? What are you going to draw on? Like, what are we producing? Like, I get scared when I see some of the kids, my my kids bring over and mm-hmm. that. And, it's and, different. You're yeah. seeing the next generation. You're meeting that, you know, next generation. And it's, it's yeah. a little terrifying. Yeah, I'm sure. It really is. And this total reliance on, on a, on a yeah. uh, device. You know, yeah. who, how many phone numbers can you recite? Yeah. Somebody will call me and say, what's so-and-so's number? And I can usually tell them. Yeah. You know, but nobody knows that. And don't even, people hardly wear watches anymore, you know. You yeah. Know, so. Yeah. Uh, and I just think that that is, you know, you're not sort of training yourself mentally. Those are just kind of dumb examples. But you're not really trained. When you always rely on something exterior, you're not training yourself mentally to to be able to yeah. You know, have some discipline to memorize this yeah. that you might need to know, you know, in the future. Yeah. That's why I think cross country skiing is so great though, because like even when I compare cross country skiing to other sports, like you just deal with so much crap in skiing, right? Like you have to deal with bad snow or good yeah. snow or you have bad wax or you have good wax. It's very unusual to have everything line up perfectly. So when you take a cross country skier and, they're, and you put them in a different situation where everything's kind of going to hell, I find they adapt better because they're used to not having everything go right. And yeah. I think to a certain extent now, for sure, uh, cross-country skiing kind of pre-selects some people who are just predisposed to not being turned off by adversity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it's Like when I compare yeah. the kids that do cross-country skiing to other sports, and it was I'd say it was evident, uh, like even with, Lola and me, our generation, mm-hmm. and when I started mountain bike racing, and you see this when you see cross country skiers take up mountain bike racing, they just deal with stuff so much yeah. better than like a road cyclist who tries mountain biking or. Interesting. Yeah. And like I see it when yeah. I see like, you know the, uh, the, masters men, skiers who have this come to Jesus moment about cross country skiing and you know it's kind of like a religious epiphany that. Oh cross-country skiing is so amazing for staying in shape, but they can't 
deal with the poor ski conditions that we grew up skiing on. So like they complain about skidoo trails or they complain about, you know, the tracks aren't far enough apart or something like that. And it's like, yes, <laughs> to deal with that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's great that yeah. that uh, you want to take it upon yourself to fix all the grooming so that it meets your standards. But it's also really good to deal with bad conditions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, I would love to have a look at the photo album that's on the table. I could bring it in. Help yourself. Yeah. Well, I know there's so many parents, Diane, that are very, very upset that Kate is. <laughs> they, some of them have said that to me, and I right. said, "Well, there's nothing I can do. <laughs> nothing I can do." No I sympathy for those parents. She came here. She took all my money. She ate all my the food. First, the first time she came, she came back. She, she, all she wanted to do was go back to BC. So, I mean, you know, I mean, these men have been like four years of duress almost. <laughs> when is she going to go? <laughs> no, for you. For you, yeah. not for me. Yeah, Oh, look at these. Oh, my goodness. So, like, Dennis has itchy armpits. Yeah. So, like, Ian Blair now lives in the States, but he uh, he's still a little bit involved. Like, I have contacts with him on, uh, on Facebook. So are these yeah. like um, family pictures these or are these ski team pictures? Oh, okay. Yeah. So like that's Pierre Roy. That's oh Lola's dad. Oh my goodness. Um. So this must be the men's team, 1978. Oh no, there's the date. Yeah. And then I think, like this is the women's team. Okay. Year. And like that oh woman, she teaches at Pugwash High School. Okay. She looks exactly the same. I'm trying to figure this might be at the hostel. I don't know. But like that's yeah, that's Pierre Roy, that's Ian Blair, and that's Dennis. I don't know. You're a little bit uh, I guess one year too late. I had the basement refinished. Or re just repainted. But remember all the medals down I can imagine the medals that the collection. Yourself in. That was seventy nine. <laughs> and like this with the pose in there. Yeah. Okay, so there's the biathlon. So so what uh, any of the kids take to biathlon and enjoying the we didn't have shooting component. Like I remember doing no. target practice in yeah. the basement with yeah. a pellet gun and then yeah. shooting over in the field, but there wasn't like unless we wanted to join cadets, which we didn't. Yeah. Uh, very clear. Then it's <laughs> yeah. We didn't really have any no. competitive opportunities. Okay. Yeah. Uh so what so for bi for biathlon, are are they as good as the Straight cross-country skiers for technique? Oh, yes. Uh, yes and no. How does it compare? There's, like, biathlons fit skate skiing. And skate skiing. it's only skate okay. skiing. But it used to be all classic. And when you look 
at like the high-end biathlon skiers they're pr almost they are there are tech technical differences um but like at the provincial level the biathletes are nowhere near as good as our cross-country skiers okay yeah. yeah that's what i was wondering yeah So how come there's um, how come there's no ski club in the Antigonish Truro area these days? Well, I, th well, I think it's does. ripe for one. I think, I <clears throat> yeah, think they and just make them back. Truro, yeah. uh, <clears throat> Truro has a few. And Kepik. I think they just. I think what they just need is to get one or two key people who have coaching certification. Yeah. Start a Jackrabbits program, and then it will start to grow yeah. again. It got the snow, and Kepik is bringing out a whole new level of involvement. Yeah, yeah. Year and round. they have Paranordic certified boots, which is really cool too. I didn't know that. Kepik has. Kepik has. Yeah, so they have one that like you can do like a, a sit ski race on it. Okay. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, remember when uh, Rob and uh, Lavinia were there? I mean, they got. They were quite interested in skiing. Then we just had like a string of bad winters. Yeah. Oh, no, so, yeah. so the enthusiasm wanes. But now um, they're rooming in the park. They're, yeah. Yeah, I think studying yeah. getting one or two people trained up. To yeah, getting a core and having yeah. some volunteers and so on. I did yeah. So which race was this, Diane? God only knows. God only knows. Yeah. Round seventy nine looks yeah. like seventy eight. Yeah. Yeah, those were the uh seventy nine teams were even when the still more soft. You know, everybody else had gone to full body suit and tights. Okay. And they still had those wonderful big high wool socks. Yes, yes. <laughs> the one-piece suits are making a big comeback. Yeah, I know. And I'll never bother with them again. I mean, they're so inconvenient for that. Yeah, but like all the, like BC, Quebec had one-piece suits at Canada Games. And all the Scotia girls were all like, oh, you want one-piece suits? <laughs> oh, yeah, until you have to go be. Yeah, yeah, you don't want the unitard people. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> we want one piece seats, those young kids. I don't know better. That's funny. Right. There's some skiing right down the road. <laughs> On Dennis Kay, he was a great uh, he is too, uh, but that's kind of an example of Brian's. Oh, so that's Brian's know, comment. Sense of humor. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and we still have roller skis like that. Yeah. Oh, back. I couldn't convince any of the current ski team members to try them. So I'm like, we do it like this, right? <laughs> Just...
Um, I mean, and Betty Hodgson, uh, she was another great helper because she got involved because Colin did. Colin went to Dow. And Colin Stewart and then. And then, uh, but she took courses in, like, uh, official, oh, you know, being yeah. a ski official. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I love the foghorn stories. Oh, oh yeah. Don't bring it up. It's in the Let's not fire it up though with the dogs and fire. No. Well, I can never get it going. It would be really fast. So he brought that to the to a number of events? Yeah, we always had it around. Like he'd take it to track meets and the other courses would get so annoying. <laughs> Because we'd have this thing roaring, and they wouldn't be able to, they, they complained to the officials, they couldn't hear their athletes, or their athletes couldn't hear them, you know, that kind of thing. So it wasn't ever dull, Diane. Not, no. Life was never was dull. Never dull. <laughs> no. Bless your heart, eh? I love it. Oh my goodness, look at this. So you fixed it up so he could skew with it on his back. <laughs> oh my God. And skiing around Newfoundland like Canada Games. <laughs> with a popcorn on his back. <laughs> but the Newfoundlanders liked it. Yeah. I said, oh, it's a dory horn. A dory horn. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Not in the stadium, though. They didn't let him use it in the stadium. Yeah, Because no. it overpowered the PA. Oh, so how much roller skiing and training did you do in the summer kate when you were i did none younger okay i didn't because the roads here well there was no place to do it like we wouldn't have been allowed to roller ski on the side of the yeah. Highway. Yeah. So these, so this '79 team, they would train. They could train differently because less traffic. Less traffic. Less. Yeah. Yeah. So why, um, why isn't there more like younger kids roller skiing in Nova Scotia? That's a good question. <laughs> How much do they cost? Well, they cost about four hundred dollars a pair, but the Halifax Nordic Ski Club bought fourteen pairs okay. that should be available for summer use. And I suspect they get a lot more use if they let kids use them, because the adults are more scared of oh, the yeah. consequences yeah. Of, of roller skiing. Um, part of it is awareness. Like when we roller ski on the the Chain of Lakes Trail, like start at the Aspen Golf Course. Yeah. Even though we ski there regularly, every time we'll hear someone saying, what are those? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, and like I've had weekly ski sessions there for three summers, sometimes with as many as ten kids, and still get people saying, what are those? <laughs> yeah. I, 
yeah, I often think that, like, I love the that idea that you had about a something around the oval, yeah. but also for this Nordic Canada wants to promote roller skiing more just because of yeah. the winters, the unstable winters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Finding the right light. Um, and I just think those fantastic bright yellow T-shirts you guys have. <laughs> Go roller around Citadel Hill every Saturday well, or somewhere, I, and I think so. The gonna... oval's not good because the of the surface. The cement is not great. Like it's oh, terrible with poles. It's oh. cement, and the wheels don't work the same either. Like I think there's not enough friction on this. But what I would love to do would be to have an uphill guys races on the Citadel, like um, yeah, that look down over the yeah, and do it at night where it's lit. That's a really neat. Um, and it's little things like that bring awareness, make it bring out the cool factor, yeah, and the speed and the, you know. yeah. yeah, but yeah. So I'm hoping, I'm really hoping someone will make the drag races happen on the commons in the winter because I think that would be a good starting point. Mm. Citadel, you'd have to get maybe federal government, but yeah. Yeah, there's, and there's a lot of ways to build around that and guarantee certain people that could come out to the drag races and try it. And you just, you know, just it's just a matter of setting it all up, making a few of those relationships before the season starts, and then say, all right, we got snow this day, you guys in, or and then you yeah. could, you could build something like that. Um, but I also think that you know, because some sports sports are starting younger and younger and younger and they kind of get the kids in and they get them into their culture and they just kind of keep them Mm. and I I just I think of that roller skiing and and raising awareness for parents in parents to say you can train year-round like cross-country skiing can give you the advantage in other sports because you're cross-training and you're using these muscles and here's how we commit to it year-round and you can do it as a family and, and, you know, but. A good person to talk about that would be someone like Chris Noyon. Because he got Linda note on cross-country skis, like, when Linda was, like, nine. Yeah. Like, almost as soon as I started doing the Sunday afternoons with the ski team, Chris contacted me and was bringing Linda note. Mm-hmm. And Linda could, like, because Chris was happy because, like, there'd be times when he'd just go for a ski himself and leave Linda with me, and which was fine. Yeah. Uh, and that, there'd be times when Chris was like, oh, I did this have a cross race this morning. I'm just going to ski with you guys. <laughs> yeah. I often wonder, like, like getting the young kids rolling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's also just making sure that, like, like when we had the, um, the roller ski race, we had a demo event. And it's just, we need to somehow reach more people than the converted, so to speak. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about straight out? Like, and that's where I'm looking at all this and hearing lots of things. And I, I just think some of those old school grassroots methods work so well. And just even simply inviting people out. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. those people that are bunny rabbit members, why don't you come on out, bring one of your friends and then you kind of get the moms together yeah. and you kind of group up and then they, you know, bring their kids and it, I, I don't think, they, like, sometimes I find that gets underestimated by, oh, let's do, let's reach this many people electronically. And I'm like, you know, that, that helps. Yeah. And that helps to market what you want to do 
down the road. So if we're trying to recruit people for a rollerthon for the ski team, okay, we can reach this many people. Yeah. Here we go. We're yeah. going to get them. But th- mm-hmm. those grassroots, like people to people, I and skiing is like Kate, it is so lovely when I parachuted into a couple of bunny rabbit lessons and like parents, I think modern day parents need to know more about the culture. Like these young instructors, you know, have these kids out and they all come back and they meet in the clubhouse and they go and get the hot chocolate, round up their group to make sure they come and sit together and there's all this camaraderie and it's just, it's really... Yeah. It is. Yeah. It is. And I leave after every single time I'm involved with the cross-country group, just like gobsmacked for a couple of hours because it's so, there's so much goodness there. And it sounds cheesy. And I, I ski, it's not pretty, but I've always had it in the background. And um, it really is amazing. It really is. Yeah. Right? But it does, it does select, pre-select a certain type of family. Like, I don't know that many families other than cross-country skiers who are going to be willing to hop in the car or drive to New Brunswick every other weekend. And I guess it's also the luxury of not having kids in a whole bunch of different organized sports, too. Yeah. Well, it, hockey parents are pretty committed, I think. Yeah. Yeah, we've got three in hockey, competitive girls hockey, and um, competitive girls hockey. Oh, yeah. and then now defund the Canadian team. Isn't that so awesome? I think somebody. I think that might actually just be a. I think there might be a plan that's on the back burner, and they just wanted to put that business model aside and just start something completely different. I have that stinking suspicion. No, but, um, yeah, it's, yeah, it is a wonderful sport. That, well, that's it. And there's no impact and it's so, uh, it's such a great cross trainer for everything, and you can be out enjoying the winter, and you can be you can be any age, and it's so and to counteract all the kids on these the screen culture the so I just I feel like I hope it's that when you're talking sports going in cycles and I I hope that you know it can build towards a peak again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what the answer is for Halifax. Like, so many things have to come together. I love that the idea that Lorenzo and Halifax Nordic is, uh, you know, they've got that snowmaking, and that's really key for, you know, ski with a mentor every Tuesday night, some volunteer that goes out and yeah. brings people out or, yeah. you know, meet as a group, bring that out so you can get people midweek. Um, and just as building, like, building the relationships, like, that's where Lorenzo has been valuable is that he's he's basically built the connection with the Brunello golf course so then if you get skiing in the winter on the golf course you can get roller skiing in the shoulder season where there's no snow but there's no golfing so you can roller ski on the golf course 
and that's yeah that's advanced roller skiing yeah but it's it's a lot of fun when you, when you feel comfortable they're gonna have so. paved they do yeah, oh, yeah. So, yeah. <clears throat> their cart yeah their cart, cart paths are all paved mm-hmm, yeah. aren't they oh, I suppose which they is are. different yeah. from some courses are gravel, but I'm sure lots of courses are going towards paved because of uh, maintenance and other reasons. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's really interesting. So, has there ever been a roller ski group for kids 10 and under? Are there ever any? No. Not. Yeah. No, really, skiing with kids that age, you'd want a safe spot. Like, you'd want a closed parking lot. <coughs> yeah. But really, the only kids who know anything about roller skiing are the ones who's uh, yeah. yeah. in plastic skiing. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of weird. I mean, because roller skating has been around for ages. Yeah. And like Ken, you remember Ken Lane. Mm-hmm. He's really into speed skating. His kids do speed skating and they do inline skating in the summer. It's just cross training. Mm-hmm. So, like, what I would like, what energy this is to be, I know from the last training camp, but it, we just didn't have time to organize it. It's kind of like targeting particular families oh, yeah. where you know they've got young, active kids. So I was thinking, like, you know, we should get on to the Tomlin family and try to get, because they've got four kids, try to get one of those kids into skiing. Who are they now? Yeah. Terry Tomlin's kids. Oh, Terry, yeah. And then, right. like, Ken, Ken Lane's kids, if they're into speed skating, maybe they'd also be interested in cross-country skiing. Although yeah. the season's kind of overlap. And then um, uh, there's a couple other, like, mm. the biathlon coach from the Serenity Games came up with Stephanie Gass. So I'm like, well, let's try to get those biathlon families and to have some yeah. more generally, especially if they don't have a coach, because yeah. it, was a, still. it was a fragile ego of a coach that kind of hindered our working together. <laughs> Who was the coach? Uh, Karen Jones. She teaches it. That's a good lead. Like, that would be a good lead. And I even wonder if. Um, it's like a racing club idea for some of those types of athletes that it's just a personal invitation to say do you want to come out and train with us or yeah you know and it's it's kind of exciting so it's not one of those beginner group or it's not but it's that athletic mindset that yeah exactly and that's like you target them you can they can you can do it as a little bit of a fundraiser so like they come for one day of the training camp uh they're in invited Specially invited, so they have that kind of exclusivity, um, and then they get the benefits of the training and the coaching. From mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's. I don't think it's complicated. I think it's kind of like that. We get all sorts. I was involved with. Um, like we we did that for hockey because five years ago there weren't many female exclusive teams, so. Me and one of the other coaches, we just we just went on a recruitment drive. We get all the good soccer players, and we get all the good yeah. athletes. And we're like, 
wanted for practice. I wanted to do it. And they got out there, and like, he was he's a good coach. And he just got them in. And they just loved it. They loved the sport. And we had every age out there on the ice, and the practices were. And all of a sudden, you know, five years, years later, you see these girls are still in the sport. They're competing at the AAA level, and they love it. And they still have their soccer and everything else. Yeah. But you got those families that were already, like, we're in. And this is good, and you're going to go in it, and you're going to like it. And and they did. Yeah, yeah. But you had good people. Like, we had good people, and there's this huge bump in a, in one of the years, and that's mm-hmm. why. Mm-hmm. Like, you can look back and say, right. like, that's why. Yeah. It's nothing fancy. It's just calling someone up, hey, do you want to, do you want to come out? And then it just builds, and then the siblings get involved and, yeah. you know, builds it. Yeah, because you guys have an amazing uh, team culture. Yeah, like so many good people involved. Lots of second gen skiers, right? Like Daniel says, like the Scallion family was the first family to have like parents, and then the kids go through. But um, I was just thinking, like he listed the Scallions of Roy's and now the Doyons, Mm -hmm. but he forgot about like. Nancy Monroe and Annie Monroe. That's true. Or Derek Estabrooks and Hannah Estabrooks. Ah, okay. And and Derek was around. He was leading Halifax. Yeah, he stepped down as president, I think, two years ago. Right. And he was out when it was Martok Nordic, and they had such a boom, and, like, they doubled their numbers. Yeah. And, yeah, so... Now it's worthwhile. Right, so like when we had the training camp last summer in Sydney, and we were skiing along that road that goes out past the airport. Yeah. Like, which is a pretty busy road. Just stuff like that. People see the skiers. I think yeah. that helps a lot. Yeah. Well, when we did the roller ski event in Lori Park, and there was a bunch of families just walking their dogs. Yeah. And so I think if like next year or this fall if it happens again or at the Rollathon, have someone there with like club membership with demo yeah. skis so people yeah. are like they can mm-hmm. sign the waiver and like just having something like a little info booth so people know okay I'm seeing this now but I could do this next weekend or starting in December I could sign up for this yeah because like with the roller ski race in the fall, I was, I was pretty happy because we raised a couple hundred dollars, and we only had I think fourteen racers or something like that. So I was like considering, like how few people actually signed up. I was quite happy with it, and then they had a big sale and raised a hundred bucks for the ski team. But if we had just had a bit more, public like time to prepare, especially in terms of like having a program schedule available or something like that, I think it could have been. Even mm-hmm. more, or if we had more, I think we had like four people sign up for the demo skis. But if we just had a bit more, more people just sh- show up and try the skis, I think it would have been. What about cool. alumni? Would they be interested if they had specific invitations to come out and join the event? I think, I think there is a good market, but it has to be. I think you have to go up with the strategy somehow because I think like someone like Chris Algar who's so busy like he's the you know junior academic basically um, yeah 
So like there's got to be good incentive for him to join. I think people like Ron Mitchell, um, he's getting back involved with the club and teaching and stuff like that. But for him, oh, I think good. it's going to be harder to sell him to get on roller skates. To get on a roller, yeah. Um, so it would depend on the alumni. Yeah. Um, but it would be, I think it would be fun to try to do like a Nova Scotia team reunion event. Yeah, like I'm thinking yeah. try to get them present, get them back involved, and then it's social. Um, mm -hmm. The other thought I was having of just raising awareness for ski team, for cross-country skiing, and roller skiing is um, if there was any way to do a demo event after the kids' fun run during the Blue Nose Marathon. Yeah. Because yeah. you've just got, the streets are closed off. Yeah. You, you don't need any permits. You've got all the core, like, everybody does that run. It's yeah. in every school, the doctor's fun run. You've got yeah. families who are on the, oh, that running club, running program they have for kids through the province, kids, yeah. whatever that's called. Yeah. And it's just your demographic mm -hmm. is just right there. How something like that? I'm not sure it's the time for it. And I mentioned it to John and Daniel in passing. Yeah. Um, but I love that all the eyes would be on it. Yeah. And with Paris, I could say we could do that year round. Like you can do it. It's something different than running, and you can save your knees. Um, God, I mean Quebec. There's kids on roller skis in Australia it's so yeah. common because they don't have big winters so they've got these companies that just that's what they do and you see little kids on them and yeah. Yeah. and then my other thought was but I don't know what the return would be like if because there's only so much you can do for volunteers like you said Diane you get involved in your gung-ho and and then you go okay we're I'm passing this on but how could somebody monetize whether it's a roller ski club or something where they have skis and they are able to make money from it so it gives them that incentive to say I'm going to throw these events together yeah. and and somebody can commit more to it because yeah. it's hard to to talk to clubs and say yeah. you can come up with all the ideas you want ski yeah. with a mentor Tuesday night ski with a mentor Saturday afternoon but how do you keep asking people to come out you know yeah. and I think like this would be asking probably be impossible but if the pavement around the commons was better if the yeah. city resurfaced it so it was smooth yeah that would be dynamite for roller skiing yeah because you wouldn't be on the oval which isn't as busy yeah but you could be on the paths and you know you could do a kilometer loop roller skiing which is pretty good to have closed kilometer no interruptions and then, like, the city could host the roller skis like they host all the stuff yeah. for the open. Or at Carroll, yeah. they, they have some sections of the play park that are paved. And if they just redid those paved sections, like, don't pave anything new in Victoria Park, yeah. but, re, like, redid some of the, like, you could get, because Truro has free ski rentals. Yeah. So then you could do free roller skiing. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, like, in Victoria Park, you've got, like, a nice flat loop at the bottom. She was a builder. She started orienteering in Nova Scotia. She was one of the foundations of cross country skiing in Nova Scotia. Yeah. And uh, alpine skiing. <laughs> yeah, and alpine skiing. That's yeah. right. Because uh, they used to, she was one of the people that would come on the ski trains. See, the train used to bring the skiers to Wentworth, and uh, they would get off here and then stay with local people and ski.
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, there is a warming hut at the top of the ski hill called the Fruit of Wales Warming Hut up there after after her. But um, so I got to know her through cross country skiing and also through orienteering uh, and the hostel because she was one of the foundation people at the hostel as well. She was good at everything, and yeah. she worked for many years for Halifax, uh, the Halifax School Board, doing outdoor education. Yes. And. Uh, Talking, you know, she would take kids, uh, you know, on canoe trips and ski trips and teach them things like that. And then when she retired, she bought the farm down there. And uh, as a matter of fact, before that, she was one of the people. When we wanted to buy this house, we had been living at the hostel for the year, and then we decided we want this house was for sale for fifteen thousand dollars, <laughs> but and we wanted to buy it. But we didn't have any money. We had to borrow money from four different people. And Frida lent us money. Just Dick Abbott lent us money. No way. Uh, Brian's mother and my mother lent us money. Now, wow. the, I think we paid back Brian's mother, but my mother didn't want to pay back. And uh, Dick got paid off right away, and Frida. Yeah. yeah. They had just finished paying off the mortgage at the hostel. <laughs> She had contributed money to that because it was a group of friends who had put money yeah. together to buy the hostel. And they had a mortgage down there that they had just finished paying off. So. Now, generous, uh, generous, uh, knowledgeable, she just, uh, Frida was salt of the earth and it was such a tragedy that she died young because she had just retired. She was just so keen on having her place here in Wentworth. And yeah. She loved Wentworth. And, yeah. Yeah. She was just such a great, solid, knowledgeable person. Yeah. And Mama saying another person you should talk to is Carl Purcell. Okay. And yeah. he lives in Dartmouth. Yeah. And he, uh, well, he was the head coach when Dad joined the team, mm -hmm. but he still goes to like the Canadian Ski Marathon every year. Wow. And he camps be, out. Yeah. Yeah. He, he does that. Uh, what's it called? The, the uh, gold. Courier the Courier de Bois or something. Oh right. Yeah. yeah. Like the yeah. two day like. Wow. Like, like I say, he would have pre-me yeah, information yeah. about skiing in Nova Scotia. Yeah. yeah. I, I, Frida Wales is really interesting, interesting story. So she grew up in Montreal. Mm -hmm. Is that where she met, is it Frank Noble? I don't know. And then yeah. she, because I, I was looking at it all online. I'm trying to piece together what is what is the history of cross-country yeah. skiing here. Yeah. And and then she moved and worked, and there's a picture of her that I found online, and she was working with Frank, I think, at the same school as teachers. And I'm like, oh, I know that last name. But nothing, Some there was one article that said they were together or they were married at one no. point. No, she was, Frida was never married. Okay. Yeah, I think they were just colleagues and good friends. Okay. And I can't even remember him. I don't know. Is he still alive? I don't. I don't know. There was some, some crossover, and and I read it ages ago, and it was like a midnight. I was going through trying to figure out who this girl was. Um, so no involvement there. Just it was interesting, and yeah. he had time working in Montreal, and I thought, well, I wonder if that was the oh, reason she. She worked at a Y or something in Montreal, and yeah. he did, and and then I'm like, why would why would she just move here? Like, what what was behind that? And because um, that's a pretty big move, Montreal to Nova Scotia at that time. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. yeah. Frida was one of four. She was actually the baby of four sisters. Her older sister, Elizabeth, who lived till she was like 94, 95, she would come down and she would not stay. Elizabeth was here almost full time, caring for her. And uh, Elizabeth was a school teacher, and uh, she was a formidable lady as well, you know. And uh, that was the generation. I just remember her saying, you know, like that her generation was when all the young men went off to the war. All the, they all got killed, so, you know, there were so few men. Yeah. Uh, to marry, yes. and like I had great aunts in that generation as yeah. well. That you know, that great aunt Mary, no husband, you know, just because yeah. there weren't any people around there. All these boys went away and got killed. Yeah, just tragic. And then yeah. there was uh, her sister, I think, it was Jeanette, and Jeanette was the one in the family who got married and had some children, and you know, she was kind of the traditional, I guess. Yeah, uh, I think. She married a Jewish, and one of her children still lives in Halifax, David, nice guy. Anyway, then there was Grace, and Grace married David Sugar, and they lived in Poland all their lives, and she was a teacher at the university or something, and he was, he just died a couple of years ago, because, you know, in the Toronto Globe and Mail, they usually have a big obituary on the back page of the obituary section like of one of a person who has a well-known person for some reason anyway when i was reading the globe and mail on saturday night and there was david sugar on the back page of the obituary yeah and uh very uh well known like research and uh wartime spies kind of stuff you know, wow kind of thing. yeah and it was so tragic. They had one daughter, I remember Grace telling me this, because over the years everybody came to Walescote. That was the name of the farm. That's what she named the farm oh, down nice. there, Walescote. Um, Grace telling about uh, they had one daughter, and they would take the ship and come to Montreal. You know, for the Not every summer, but some. Anyway, she went on the trip back. The daughter fell and hurt her leg, and anyway, it ended up being cancer, and she died. She was like six but, so they are all, all buried in yeah Warsaw. They were in Warsaw. And yeah. So. yeah. And then there was so there was yeah Grace, Jeanette, Elizabeth, and Frida. Frida was the baby yeah. of the family, but she was actually the first one to die. Yeah. No, but I just you know like a builder. She was just a builder. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and she had some involvement in the North Highlands securing some of the land that Cape they Smoky. had. Okay, in Cape Smoky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in Wentworth, and yeah. like, what a like, what a story! And in that day, yeah, so in that day and age, is something like right oh, now. Yeah. It's it, it would be interesting, but and and I just think like it'd be great to do like a little video or something up. That's like imagine being on a road trip free to Wales, like to come from where she lived in Montreal, and there are ski hills all over the place in eastern townships, and then you come here and you've got this right here and you're looking around going like people and smoky yeah. you know um yeah she should write a book about her really you know because yeah she, she was remarkable yeah she was remarkable yeah 
Now I think, now I'm just remembering why I thought Frank Noble was involved with her. Because at, in one document I looked at online, they had her name as Frida Noble Wales. Really? And I thought, okay, like, you know, you look back and you go, well, that's different. And then I saw her in a picture that was Frank Noble, and they saw Frida Wales, and it was her first summer doing phys ed, because they never had a phys ed program and no females teaching phys ed, and she was one of the first. And then I thought, oh, I wonder if that was just, and then, then he was not in the picture or not mentioned ever again. And I thought, oh, maybe it's a coincidence. Maybe she had a hyphenated name and she only had that in for one publication. But I was just curious. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Well, maybe I'll make an appointment to talk to you sometime about Frida. Yeah. But she really comes through in the history. Like when you, I love yeah. getting into a new organization, but and you just keep getting these names coming yeah. up, and you just wonder, what if that person moved to BC instead of Nova Scotia? What yeah. would have happened? Yeah. You know, to see the opportunity. But yeah. Rose Algar is getting the Frida uh, Wales Award this year. Is she? Well, good to chat, and um, I'll probably be following up by email with questions I have as I go through things, Diane. That's fine. I like email. Or you can call. I don't mind.